There are many things from which I have derived good and have not profited. Christmas being among them. But I've always thought of Christmas as a kind, charitable time. The only time when men open their shut-up hearts and think of all people as fellow travellers to the grave and not some other race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, uncle, although it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe it has done me good and I say God bless it! There's more of gravy than of grave about you. Come in and know me better, man! Frankly, many would rather die. Then they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. We're here to talk about a Christmas carol. Um, maybe a good place to talk about is just going, you know, why is Dickens writing a Christmas carol? What's the point behind it? Because I think my students struggle the most with getting that side of it in there. Like, what, what, what is Dickens' purpose just besides he wants everybody to have a Merry Christmas? Well, thankfully, Dickens kindly wrote a preface to the book for us, for that. And I think he tells us that in the preface. And... That's the thing that I made my students look at absolutely first, and I'm not 100% sure that everyone's actually read. And he tells us that he is trying to raise the ghost of an idea. So uh, he doesn't want to put people out of humour with it, so he doesn't want to force this idea down people's throats. He doesn't want people feeling like they have to do this or have to do that. It's, it's for entertainment as well as its important message. He doesn't want to put people out of humour with himself or the season or with me, he says. He says, may it haunt their house pleasantly. So he wants to raise the ghost of an idea, and we all should know from the hard work of your excellent teachers what that ghost of an idea is. It's the same message that Presley is trying to get across an inspector calls, and I've been constantly making links with Presley and Dickens throughout, because essentially they're both socialists who cared for the vulnerable, the needy, the poor of England and London, specifically for A Christmas Carol. And I think that, um, I can't remember exactly how it's quoted, but Dickens is buried in Westminster and on his gravestone, part of your knowledge quiz that you've been doing, students. Uh, he was a servant to the poor and the helpless and the needy. And he says in the preface that he is their faithful friend and servant. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I like teaching them together as such, picking these two texts off the, the options, because they have very similar ideas. And so, therefore, you know, they tie in so nicely to each other and that makes them easier to remember and recall for the students. But that idea of compassion for people who are suffering, particularly those in poverty, and the idea that we need to be more understanding and tolerant of other people um, is, is kind of the main idea. And those Christian values of forgiveness and kindness and generosity, um, which relates to the true meaning of Christmas. I also find it really interesting about how you were saying in the preface, um, to haunt their house pleasantly also links to how his the spirits are presented in both a humorous and a frightening way. Mm. And that juxtaposition of humour and fear 
is very much also Dickens's kind of stance on religion. He was a Christian, he wanted to promote Christian values, but he didn't believe in a stricter use of fear, and was actually one of the first writers to make an illustrated version of the Bible for children. So I think that ties in really nicely. Yeah, and I think, again, that links with Presley. Um, <coughs> in my opinion, Presley is essentially Dickens, just a, 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 bit, a bit later, a half a century later, because Presley was an atheist and he didn't believe in God, but he certainly promoted Christian values. Mm. However, he was very much like Dickens in the respect that he felt the Christian church, the church had become corrupt, which is why he was an atheist, because he didn't believe that a loving God could be all about punishment and damnation and all of those things. Um, and that's one of the reasons that he was an atheist. And I think if Dickens had been born half a century later, obviously the idea of being an atheist and not believing in God in, in the Victorian time was absolutely shocking. So... Um, they're the same principles, just under different guises. One's Christianity and one is socialism. But interestingly, today we were talking about how there is an underlying, very subtle underlying current of this idea of religion being corrupt when the second spirit talks about uh, men of cloth using religious for their own ill gains. But it's mm. far more subtle in A Christmas Carol than it is in An Inspector Calls. But my class today also linked that to uh, Blake's London and Blackening Church of Paul's. So there is that kind of running theme of corruption in religion. Yeah. Um, I didn't even know there was a preface, so I've learned something today already. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the idea about social responsibilities, uh, interesting in, in, in both novels, um, or the play in the novella. Uh, I teach my students something about a guy called Thomas Malthus, who usually it's just geographers who know about Thomas Malthus. But he had this belief system that kind of the environment, any environment has a carrying capacity to it. So if I put a bird feeder out there and it's got enough feed for 100 birds, well, eventually, as the birds kind of get out and tell their bird friends about this free feed, eventually it'll become overpopulated. And what happens then is eventually the first 100 birds who show up will get fed and the rest will die off. And Thomas Malthus kind of believed that that was what society should be like. And he's a contemporary of um, Dickens around this time. And there's a, a Malthusian viewpoint to be the idea that well, the worst thing we can do for the poor is actually sustain them. Because all we're doing is we're creating more of the poor. And you can see that in a character like Bob Cratchit, who's actually quite poor, but he has a very, very large family who could arguably be a, a, a drain on society. And so when you see... Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge say a line such as, you know, um, they should better die, they should better do it, and decrease the surplus population. Uh, I have to see that as a direct um, rebuttal to that Malthusian viewpoint, that what do we do? We take the biggest villain in, in our piece, and we make him espouse this viewpoint. And he's obviously a change that goes along, but the idea that, yeah, from a, from a dollars and cents perspective, that's the way you want to look at it in that cold mindset. Absolutely, the poor are just a drain, but if you want to look at it for this more Christian ideal of what is actually right and what is actually wrong, then we have to throw away this, this, this viewpoint. But Scrooge only sees it once he comes face to face with the humanity of it, when he's sort of cloistered away in his little hovel. You can have that distance and that viewpoint and that coldness about him, which is obviously how he's described with that coldness. But in order, when he, when he actually gets on, on, on the face level of this joy and happiness, despite everything they don't have, 
um, I think that's kind of that idea that social responsibility, much like in an inspector calls, until they're actually forced to deal with the face of what that means, change doesn't happen. I've never heard of that guy before, so it's really interesting. But I guess I always teach it from the point of view of the poor law and how you know the, the government essentially at the time decided that there was too much money going into sustaining the poor. And so the poor law and the development of workhouses was a way of no longer sustaining the poor in that they had to work to gain any kind of benefit. So I guess it ties in nicely with that. There's another guy called Jeremy Bentham. Sorry, I'm throwing all these 19th century philosophers out. <laughs> but Jeremy Bentham believed that if given the, the their choice, the poor would always choose leisure over work. And that is why you needed the new poor law, because no one, if given the option of, of a free handout, would ever um, deny that in favor of going to work. And it's, it's actually a theme and a rhetoric we still hear very much mm -hmm. today about anybody who needs social assistance. And so again, interesting that Scrooge has given that sort of speech with, uh, are there no prisons, the workhouse is still mm -hmm. in working, or the treadmill still in vigor. And he describes them as idle as well. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And so again, it feels like it's a direct contradiction to those two very much contemporary thinkers of that time. It's really good to have those names, though, I think, for that precise context. Um, I've always taught it that the pre predominant view was that the poor were to blame for their own poverty because Scrooge refers to them being idle, it's the, down to their own laziness and stupidity. Um, but yeah, it's really good to have that kind of philosophy behind it. So the moral message, I think, is quite obvious and it's important to remember, obviously, there were many factors in Dickens' life as well that definitely influenced his writing. Uh, he wasn't an orphan himself, but certainly the experience of being uh, sent to the workhouse after his father was sent to the debtor's prison and being separated from his family at age 12 probably made him feel like an orphan. Mm. Um, and we see this reoccurring, reoccurring theme of vulnerable young orphan boys throughout a lot of his novels. Um, and this idea of that there is just nobody to care for them, um, that uh, all of the people in the institutions that are supposed to support them, uh, such as the workhouses and the orphanages, um, the baby farms, which don't feature in this novel, but are a horrific factor of that time. All of these things, all of the people in the institutions that were supposed to help them, they were all supposed to be good Christians, um, but actually they're corrupt and they exploit them uh, and use them uh, and the money that's supposed to be spent on them for their own advantage. But thinking about Dickens' later life, obviously uh, he was also a journalist and... Um, I think that's reflected in um, the, the fact that he obviously had a great experience of London and all walks of life in London, and also the sort of sensationalism, uh, the style of his novel, which uh, really does tear at the heartstrings. Um, I didn't expect to, but uh, we finished this uh, with my class just last week and uh, describing uh, the scene where Tiny Tim has died in the potential future, I found myself welling up. Um, I think it is a little bit cliched and cheesy, but I think it is, is, is done that way for effect. And we've got to remember that uh, obviously we're exposed to all sorts of uh, films and TV shows and things in the modern day, but in Victorian times, uh, there wasn't much literature and especially for the poorer people to read. Uh, Dickens deliberately sold this for five shillings, which was, wasn't exactly cheap in those days, but he sold it so as the poorer people could have access to it. And I think it would have touched a lot of people 
emotionally, like it has me hundreds of years later. So this is something I was struggling with, was Scrooge taking such a shine to Tiny Tim so quickly, and really hanging his hat on Tiny Tim. And I just always want, it doesn't, it feels a bit hackneyed, it feels a bit, a bit too simple, and I really thought about that. And this year, I think I may have stumbled upon something, he said, with a glimmer in his eye. Uh, in stage two, uh, I, I, I was paying attention especially to how uh, the writer, how Dickens, describes fan. Yeah. And it's always with words that suggest weakness or smallness or fragility or being delicate. Mm. And we see how he's quite emotionally distraught over what happens with Fan in Stave 2. And then we're introduced to Tiny Tim in Stave 3. And in Stave 3, we again have this delicate lexus of weakness, of, of, of sickliness described to him. And we get Little Fan and we get Tiny Tim. And I'm very much convinced now that Dickens sets us up with Fan in stage two and the way he describes her and that overwhelming positive relationship he has with his sister, also kind of explaining why he may not like Fred that much because it's left very, very ambiguous. Besides whether she died, what has happened, but if she's very, very small in those days, childbirth couldn't have been easy. And so it might be a bit of an inference on my part, but regardless, she dies young and he, the one person who he has, the one bit of family we see him actually have a link to, it's taken away. And then we see that Bob has something very similar in his own household. And I think Dickens gives us fan in stage two, so we're ready and we're prepared. Yeah, I think so. But doesn't three. the spirit also say that fan dies a woman? She has a woman, Which yeah. I think is the inference that she died in childbirth. Yes. And many students have always said that that's perhaps why Scrooge finds it difficult to be close to Fred. Yes. Because Fred and his mannerisms or appearance may well remind Scrooge of his little sister fan but i think as well as little fan you've got in stave two scrooge seeing his own vulnerability as a child it goes back to what you were just saying about this image of poor orphaned boys mm. boys who are lonely and isolated and so scrooge sees in himself his vulnerability as a child and that's mirrored in tiny tim and so there builds an empathy for tiny tim which allows him to feel more human again and we start to get emotion from Scrooge, we start to get those tears from him. Yeah, we get, I mean, my, my class, we've discussed what is Scrooge's background. Fan, Fred and his father are the only ones that are mentioned. And, uh, you know, we have deduced that his mother, that there's no mother, that she died potentially in childbirth with Fan. And we talked about mm. how typical it was for women to die in childbirth in those days, um, obviously with no sort of medical facilities. Sometimes, if they were lucky, a midwife present or another female present to help them with the childbirth, uh, but quite often just on their own. Um, and so we've assumed that there is no mother, and we've also decided <clears throat> in our heads, creating our own backstory for Scrooge, that that's why the father is distant. He's, he's in cold, he's grieving. Uh, Scrooge is then sent away to boarding school. Fan herself is so young that she's kept at home. Uh, and then father is changed when yeah. Fan goes to pick him up uh, from the boarding school, pick Scrooge up and take him home. And she, she says that father is different now. He is much kinder. So perhaps potentially he's finally over his grief. And, but it's too late because Scrooge by this time is, is, is a young boy who's felt that abandonment, which is why he can relate to Tiny Tim. Um, and yes, I totally agree with the theory that, that Fan died in childbirth, which is potentially why he is estranged. He's not had uh, love in his life only really from two women, 
from Fan and Bell, and uh, both of them have abandoned him, Bell by breaking off the engagement and Fan by dying on him, uh, and potentially also the love of his mother earlier on. So uh, he, he's lost the only people that he's been close to. And I think we have some hints of that in places, because obviously in Stake 1, one of the quotes that we tell the students to learn and that they kind of cling on to is that whole solitary is an oyster, and we can unpack the image of an oyster as much as we want. But also when he's left alone, it refers to him as being solitary at that point as well. And I think that's a conscious link to go, you don't get to Scrooge in Stake 1 without this experience in Stake 2. But then, I mean... It's complicated because if we just left it there, we could go, okay, clearly see why Scrooge has been, has turned out the way he has. But then we get Fezziwig. And we get Fezziwig who shows him really what a boss should be. And it, it takes a little bit of the victimhood away from Scrooge because he did have a mentor who showed him the way it is to, to live and treat your employees and be generous and realize that it's about the good you make with those around you. And it seems Fezziwig is very much... Uh, took it upon himself to bring happiness and joy out of his abundance to those who didn't have as as much. And somewhere along the way, we're not really shown where, Scrooge loses that life lesson. Isn't it in his conversation with Belle when she breaks off the um, engagement and he says about how his biggest fear is to live in poverty, and that's mm. not, and that, which is also Dickens's fear. And so that overworking, being stressed about work, being consumed by work and money, causes him to distance himself from people. But it does also, again, start to explain why he does that and why he kind of estranges himself from his family and his fiancée. And it is interesting, because that could easily be how Dickens ended up. It's obviously, the, the, the threat of poverty left such a mark on him. That he had chosen. It's very. It's like the same motivation, but two very different outputs. Where yeah. Scrooge goes to the very much like a dark side of it, where as Bell says, he treats everything by loss and gain. Whereas Dickens himself chooses instead to become a champion of the poor, yeah. and try to make sure that you know he can use the voice he has to effect some sort of change. Yeah, and I think the chasing money. Uh, which Bell describes as you're replacing me with a golden idol, uh, an idol being a god, something that you worship, which ties in with the Christian message here and all the corruption of the Christian church who uh, were, were terribly rich themselves and hoarded gold and silver and jewels in their churches. Um, but she's talking about being replaced with this golden idol, which is money, but it's typical behaviour of somebody who's gone through hardship or abandonment uh, to, to seek that security. Um, and we've talked about filling in gaps, and you've raised the idea, Mr Gouda, of what's the gap between Fezziwig and this, this shiny example of a perfect boss and him ditching this lovely, ideal, perfect woman, Belle, uh, who's a moral person, and, and what's the gap there? It's only the gap of a few years. Um, and I think the gap is that, that Scrooge has tasted a bit of success. He wants more. He wants that security. Uh, and perhaps, potentially, again, maybe just reading a lot in there, he wants to impress his father. We assume, actually, that he perhaps hasn't grown up in poverty because he's sent away to boarding school and a carriage is sent with him with Fan. So we assume that Scrooge isn't growing up necessarily poor. But uh, perhaps he's trying to impress his father, who's always been quite distant and cold. Uh, but he, he's definitely sort of taken a wrong turn, and he doesn't necessarily see it as a wrong turn. And I think that reflects 
you know, Dickens's time, and that reflects in Victorian times and sort of, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution as well, uh, which again links to Blake's poem London and the idea that in the Industrial Revolution now in hindsight is seen as, as quite having a negative impact. Uh, but at the time, it was the empire, British empire was growing and there was industry and there were factories and you were making stuff and you were building railways and you were going places and things were growing. It was all very exciting. Uh, but the impact of that on, on the poor, on the, on the farming communities, on, on nature, um, you know, all, on the environment, all of those kind of negative impacts weren't, weren't seen for a very long time later. So at the time, I don't think Scrooge thought that he was doing anything wrong. He's just trying to make a secure future for him and his fiance. Uh, whereas she points out she would be more than happy with him if they had nothing. For her, it's about the love and the connection, not about the pursuit of the golden idol. I'm not. I'm just thinking of what you said about um, the fact that perhaps Scrooge doesn't grow up in poverty because he went to boarding school. Mm. But isn't it um, the same as what Dickens went through? As in Dickens originally went to boarding school, but then because of the um, his father going to prison and the family being separated and going into poverty, isn't the same happened to Scrooge? Because I don't think his father's mentioned again, and it was my understanding that um, Fan dies, but his father dies too, and his mother's dead. Mm. So when he goes and works with Fezziwig as an apprentice, that's because he has no family left, and somehow. He seems to drop in status because Bell says to him about that's when we were both mm. young and both poor. Mm. True. So yeah. there seems to be it's it's not fully explained in the book, but it seems to sort of allude to or suggest that for whatever reason Scrooge has lost his family and lost mm. that wealth, security, emotional security as well as financial security. Yeah, and we we do have him and his fellow apprentice sleeping under the tables in yeah. in, in Fezziwig's um, office. Yeah. So that would definitely support that. Um, I mean, it's important that I mean I don't think Dickens is presenting the rich in and of itself as a bad thing. I don't think he's necessarily calling for an extreme communist spread all of the wealth throughout. Because he plays a little bit loose and fast with what's rich and what's poor. Fred's referred to as poor. Yet when we get to Fred's house. Fred's got a servant and a cook and, mm. and a housekeeper. And so I think when, when that opening scene happens and Fred's gets older, you're poor enough, and the students think poverty, like Bob Cratchit's in, yeah. in, in poverty. And it's not quite the same as, as that. And I had somewhere I was going with this and now I've lost it. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Well, poverty. I mean, what is poverty? Is, is it a lack of love? Poverty doesn't mean necessarily not being rich it, it, it means lacking in, in, in something and in essentials and essential needs and people associate it with money all of the time now but there's all sorts of there's emotional poverty uh, you know uh, there's, there's poverty where you're just not being cared for um, all of those types of things so I think that the novel as a whole isn't just thinking about money in terms of poverty, and I think the Cratchits are the absolute perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the the Christmas scene with the Cratchits, which I don't imagine will be in the exam because it was in the exam two years ago, uh, but that is the extract there of them, you know, enthusiastic and going crazy over this tiny Christmas pudding to feed the eight of them, uh, you know, is, is set up deliberately to show us that, that they are a wealthy family because they are full of love and appreciation and gratitude, even though they've just got 
one small goose and a Christmas pudding to share between the eight of them. Even to the point where the narrator says they sat in a half a circle, which mm. Bob called a full circle. Well, Bob called a full circle, meaning a half a circle. Bob is mm. so ridiculously optimistic that he will even take the shape of a circle and multiply it so it stretches beyond. Yeah, and they place. eked out the goose with uh, mashed potatoes. So, mm. so much sage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think that's the thing. We see Fezzi waiting. Fezzi was good. He's good, Rich. Uh, and I think it's that biblical quote, this is what I was thinking of earlier, uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself. Fezziwig shows us you can have money. I think Fred shows us you can have some money. He's not poor by any stretch of the imagination. But it's that love of money that made, that turns into a golden idol. Mm. And it turns wrong. And so... Uh, and before we started yeah. the po podcast, Mr. Gouda and I were discussing uh, the, you know, my theory that if there's one thing that you you need to revise and brush up on, it's the idea of the Christianity, what that is, what the Christian message is, because this Bible, this Bible, I called it a Bible, that goes to show what I'm saying, this book is littered with religious references, left, right and centre, you know, um, we've got the imagery of Jesus, we've got, uh, we've got sacrifice and forgiveness we've got the idea of the lamb that has left the flock which is scrooge and and can redeem itself we've got the images of purgatory and hell with jacob marley uh just everywhere you look you can make some link to christianity or the bible um so for those of you that do have you know, knowledge of the Bible, uh, Christianity, the Christian message, religious imagery, uh, if you're aiming for a higher level uh, sort of conceptual response, a level five or a six response in the literature paper with this, if you were just to follow the Christian thread throughout the novella um, and use that as the basis for all of your points and arguments, you'd certainly be doing yourself a big favour. It is interesting that... Um Pivoting. Um, that the, the, the Christian message, I mean, it can speak to if we are Scrooge. I think too often we go, well, it's like Scrooge. And I teach them, like, if Scrooge can change, anybody can change. And there's that level of it. But then we also get Fred and Bob, two characters who are oppressed heavily or punished heavily by Ebenezer Scrooge. Yet both of them unified in um, their desire to toast Mr. Scrooge on the mm -hmm. day of Christmas. Yeah to the rebuttals of those who they are having dinner with in both situations. I think it's both of their wives. Uh, it is. I do, get, I do get the impression <laughs> from knowing a bit about his life and reading this book that Dickens was a little bit of a sexist, but you don't need to write that in your exam. We'll leave that aside. He had a very but un unsuccessful first marriage. He, he did. He yeah. did. He had some awkward relationships with females, and I think that can be reflected in his sort of heroism of the male characters and the... Uh, playfulness slash tartiness of some of the female characters yes. but that's just an aside <laughs> you're saying mr gouda that the uh, wives but, but just yeah well not the wives necessarily but they, they get their, their, their wives try to rebut their desire to give thanks and appreciation to scrooge even if he would not want them to i think fred even says mm. even though he would not have it mm. he shall have it nonetheless and the idea that forgiving those who do wrong to us it's easy to kind of see the side of it that goes i should change and there's a story about redemption I can look at it for myself. But I think the second level is, and if there's those in my life who are causing me that grief, the Christian thing to do, the desecularization of what the holiday is about is, you know, Bob Hector says, my dear, Christmas Day, it is a time for peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's one of those links where, you know, we see Fred is Bob Cratchit, is the ghost of Christmas present, and they just sort of, it's Fezziwig, and these, 
very Christian forgiving, generous traits we see emulated in almost every other significant male character within the novella, which leaves poor old Scrooge once again very solitary. Mm. Yeah. So the Christian message, hugely important, and that leads us nicely, obviously, to uh, the spirits, because I think we've spoken about the significant human characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then we've got the spirits, and I really liked uh, Miss Britt Greenacre, the um, things that you put um, on the PowerPoint about the idea of uh, the choice of words moving through from a spirit to a phantom uh, throughout throughout the novella. Um, you know, we have positive connotations with the word spirit, and spirit obviously has religious connotations as well in terms of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but when you talk about somebody uh, who is lively, you say they have high spirits, and we've got positive connotations with that. Um, so we have the ghost of Marley, and then we go through the three spirits, but the final spirit is uh, the phantom. Uh, so the 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 first spirit is the embodiment of of memory and the past and the importance to honor the past or or to learn from it i think mm. scrooge learns from the past doesn't he and that it the power of the past is that it's transformative if we pay attention to and reflect what has happened to us in the past then we can understand ourselves and therefore transform ourselves and, and improve and amend ourselves, um, which is what Scrooge goes through. So memories, it, it kind of comes back to that lesson that I'm always saying to students where it's, you know, it explains things but doesn't excuse it. And that's kind of what Scrooge learns from the power of the past. I think it's interesting, the, the ghost Christmas past always refers to what they're seeing as shadows. And things about substance. So, although yeah. they're experiences we can learn from, there's also a limiting factor on that idea of a show about substance. We can learn from it, but you can't, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything about it. So, learn from it and then realize the substance is a thing that's still to come. Yeah. So, and actually, the language in that is really interesting that in the first spirit, everything is a shadow and everything is shimmering and mm-hmm. it's coming in and out of focus. And then you have something similar with the third spirit, where it's kind of also shadowy because it's the future and it's not mm-hmm. substance, it's not yet happened. The most solid thing, you know, where it, it's the second spirit where he says, um, touch my robe. Yeah. And it, it's that, that moment of touch and that solidity of actually you need to kind of live in the present. Um, and not live in the past. Or That's why it's called a present, because it's a gift to you. <laughs> yeah, I just got to get that quote in there. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And um, <clears throat> I, I totally agree with what you were saying before, Ms. Bit Greenacre, about this idea of, um, you know, it's, it's a reason, but it's not an excuse. And I think that um, it's really important that ghost visits, uh, A, for us to understand the humanity in Scrooge uh, and get the idea that, that, that there is hope for him, but more importantly, like all good novels and books, for us to be able to relate to them ourselves, uh, to to see how the past has shaped us, uh, not forget that we were all vulnerable, we've all got hurt in our past, and not to become Scrooge by forgetting that and building up this wall, or in his case, the shell, his hard oyster shell, around ourselves, but to let that vulnerability still be a part of who we are so as in our relations with others we can be more empathetic and I think that obviously ties in hugely with Scrooge's message you know whether you're rich or poor we've all had hurt and heartbreak and we need to to be humans we need to as Marley says, we need to travel abroad amongst mankind uh, so that's a metaphor so it's not we don't that doesn't mean that 
let's all just go on holiday everywhere. But we need to let our hearts relate to other humans around us. That's what empathy is. And we need to try and step into other people's shoes as we can relate to them, uh, feel their suffering and, and show compassion, which obviously, again, isn't just Dickens's message, but is the Christian message. I think we see that in the joy in the ghost of Christmas present. I mm. mean, how many times is there reference to his laughs? And then mm. what are the characters are the reference to their laughs as well? I mean, Fred, it says, has a melodious, you'd be blessed if you had such a laugh. And so, and then Fezziwig, of course, was always laughing when he was doing things. And, and Scrooge at Scrooge the end, who yeah. chuckles, and chuckles, chuckles and chuckles and chuckles. chuckles. And when he's shaving, it says it was all the first of a long line of laughs. And that yeah. idea that being present and finding joy and celebrating Christmas and, and, and finding redemption, all those things br brings you joy. So even on that sort of, um, not a selfish level, but on the idea that there is there is a reward for this change in spirit, and that is not, you know, the removal being solitary, but actually there. And much like when he was the ghost of Christmas presents, there's a lot of times where we do focus on when he goes and sees Bob and he goes and sees Fred, but they do walk the town a fair bit and see mm. people celebrating their Christmases. And it says that when Scrooge changes, he goes and walks amongst the people, and it's not until many hours later he arrives at Fred's. And at that point, he's decided he'd never spent such a wonderful afternoon yeah. just around the regular people yeah. before he gets personal. Also juxtaposes with how actually in the very beginning, one of the first descriptions we get of Scrooge is him walking down a London street and people crossing the road to get away and from Even him. the blind man's dog turning away. around and going the other way. The, the ending of the novel is almost literally a reversal mm -hmm. of stave one. Yeah, Everything absolutely. happens in reverse. Um, well, the, the whole novel is just littered full of contrasts and motifs. You can contrast the laughs. You can look at hands. The withered hands, the hands of ignorance and want. Scrooge's hand, hand the open giant. hand. Yeah. yeah, there's so many sort of links and threads that you can pull out throughout the novel. But yes, it is. It's it's a circular novel. Um, you know, we go from Christmas Eve to Christmas morning, and the comparison of Scrooge walking amongst the people with the blind man's dog running off from him, and then the description of him as light as a feather, uh, as um, merry as a schoolboy, and we've even got sort of similes which which compare because we have the grindstone, which is heavy and a weight, it's a metaphorical weight um, around him, and now he's as light as a feather. So <coughs> there's a huge amount of contrast throughout the novella that um, is, is great for your sort of AO2, your writer's methods and effect, um, which, which can show the change. But back, back to what you were saying, Mr. Gouda, you know, this idea of I wish it could be Christmas every day or keep Christmas, <laughs> keep Christmas in our hearts. You know, this is called a Christmas carol, uh, but really, you know, it, it should be called a Christmas carol for throughout the year because I think the whole idea is that that all of those things that are Christmas things, such as forgiveness and joy and all of that, the idea is that we, we need to live with Christmas in our hearts every day. And I think that Scrooge is definitely sort of vowing to do that to the phantom, the ghost of Christmas yet to come towards the end. I think he says, I, I will keep this in my heart every day. So it's not just about Christmas. We've got to remember that the whole novella is a complete and utter construct uh, Scrooge isn't real. Yeah. He, he's he's and uh, obviously the, the the Cratchits and and Fred they're just mouthpieces for for Dickens and Fred. and his message. Um, all the characters have a function within the novella, and 
ultimately it's 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 its message that isn't just a Christmas message that really uh, needs to come home. We haven't talked a huge amount about the Phantom. I mean, largely assumed as being the representation of death or the Grim Reaper. Does anybody have any interesting insights or other takes on that? Just tying it in with that element of fear um, and tying mm. that in again to Christianity, this fear of purgatory or hell. So Dickens's language changes, we know, from spirit to phantom with the final one, but also the, the semantic field there of death. I just love in stay four that it's shrouded, gravely. Um, that it moves gravely, mm. that it's solid. It um, feels Scrooge with a solemn dread. You know that semantic field of death there is where we're really reaching that climatic moment in the novel, where out of fear now, Scrooge needs to change. And the lack of dialogue from the Phantom, which forces Scrooge to do all of his own sort of revelations, but in the way that Scrooge inhabited London in Stave One, where he was silent and grave and walked around yeah. and wouldn't talk to anybody, and, and now we see it amplified mm -hmm. in Stave Four, and we see Scrooge have to be the one who begs and negotiates, which we see a hint of with Caroline and her husband, who obviously owe Scrooge money and everything. Mm. But we put Scrooge in that begging stance and trying to change what appears to be the impossible. And this is where I'm going to throw him up. My favorite quote, because we're, we're, we're doing that now. <laughs> uh, the bit where, in save one, we hear, but he was a tight fisted old hand at the grindstone, the idea mm. that Scrooge is abrasive, and he wears you down. But in stave four, he wants to sponge away the writing on the stone, and mm. the idea of making something clean, and not wearing it away, but you could grind away the, the inscription, but to, but to sponge it, to clean it, and to make things better than they were before, rather than to wear it away. And the lack of speech by the Phantom in Stay Four kind of forces Scrooge to he's bargaining for his soul, <laughs> amongst other things. But it, it does force us to see that revelation. And even something as simple as it says, he felt cold. He felt the coldness of the mm. spirit. In Stay One, we're told no wintry wind could chill him. He doesn't feel hot and cold because he carries his own low temperature. And now he feels that. And even that in Stay Four can just go, just let's not absolutely stay one and say five do mirror and they're perfect places to park the bus but there are some things happening in stay four which i think gets overlooked sometimes because mm -hmm. you go i think we think it's just not we but the students might think it's a bit of just a perfunctionary kind of plot point this is what gets screwed to the good part stay five but there's a lot of revelations in that we just don't have the benefit of dialogue we have to go through some long stretches of description sometimes to get there well i don't think that dickens wastes a single word I honestly don't. I think that uh, <laughs> I, you, you, you disagree. <laughs> well, I know you, you told me the interesting <laughs> fact that he had to throw some extra things in to meet his word count. <laughs> but um, you, I think that you could just sort of open the book on almost any page and glance at a word and you could write a short essay out of it. I honestly do. You know, I mean, just little things like the image of the cat tearing at the door, gnawing rats beneath the hearthstone, uh, you know, uh, what they wanted in the room of death and why they were there. You know, the imagery of that is uh, is just so creepy. And we do have to remember that this is essentially a ghost story. Um, and as Ms. Brett Greenacre has spoken about quite a bit, that element of horror really does um, have to be in there. Ghost stories hugely popular for of entertainment in Victorian times um, and um, there was uh, three years ago a, a question in the exam about um, 
Scrooge's fear and how frightened he is throughout the, the novella. So we do need to sort of bear that in mind. It's not just about Scrooge's change, it's about mm. the, the fear, it is about the horror elements as well, the horror and the humour um, and the humanity. I think, uh, because we do get people from all walks of life. You mentioned Caroline earlier. Uh, she's easily forgotten, uh, but Caroline and her husband and their children desperately awaiting word from whether or not they can have an extension on their loan from Scrooge. And then poor Caroline feeling so guilty because she's happy that Scrooge is dead. Um, and she, you know, she knows it's bad to feel happy, celebrate somebody's death, but it, it, it's the end of a death sentence for them because uh, being unable to pay that loan, they would be ruined, they'd be in debtors prison, they'd be in the workhouses. And it's not being dramatic to say it's the raising of a death sentence for them because the workhouses were horrible places with all sorts of physical sexual abuse and on top of that dangerous, dangerous machinery. And um, you know, you could be scalped if your hair was caught in the machines, you could lose a hand, you could use limbs, uh, with you could die of malnutrition uh, if you know somebody bigger and stronger than you was taking your food off of you. Uh, so it's not over dramatic to say they had a death sentence lifted off them by Scrooge's death. So I don't think he wastes a word or, or, or a single character. Um, you know, I think that it, it, the, the language obviously might be a bit hard to access for some people, uh, which is why, you know, just, just engage with the concepts and the emotions of the novel if you can't engage with the words as much. Or, or pick something you do understand, like the images of laughter or the images of hands. You don't need to remember the semantic field of if... if if no, you don't understand what that means, what's just so long equally as... important is that just the symbolism throughout yeah. what each character symbolizes and what each spirit symbolizes. Which I think we've talked you through about all. I don't think we've got any characters left to look no, at. I don't think any so. last thoughts, favourite well, bits? Oh, I do my favourite bit. Let's do that. I like that. That's a nice little yeah. segment. My favourite bit. I like the introduction of Fred. Fred is my, my favourite bit, it's the introduction of Fred. We've just had Scrooge introduced as the cold man who's bitter and carries on low temperature, and then Fred bursts in, and his face is aglow, and he's warm and out of breath, yet he's beaming with all the joy and happiness of Christmas, and we see that clearly they're foils for each other. And it also gives us hope, because they're blood relatives, that this is who Scrooge could be. And later on in Stay 5, we do get that Scrooge is in a glow. And so it's sort of the promise that will be fulfilled. So, but I just like Fred in the face of unwavering good days and kicking him out. He, as he did his toast, he's, just, I, I, he's mad at me, and what good does that do? He just misses out on a good meal. I just, I just love Fred. I think it's really hard for me to pick a favourite bit because I'm a huge Dickens fan. Um, and I know that's something that for English teachers divides us. People love him or hate him. Um, but I agree with you. That there's just not a word wasted in any Dickens novel. I'm going to put that oh, out there. Oh. Um, so I just, the, but the two things that I really love about a Christmas Carol in particular is his use of symbolism and also reiterating what you just said about the juxtaposition. The cold within him froze his up his features, and then uh, Fred comes in all aglow. Just constant juxtaposition throughout of light and dark, of hot and cold. Um, of, ha of joy and happiness and misery and grumpiness of the juxtaposition throughout it I just think is, is really well done 
my favourite bit is 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 the similes. I absolutely, I mean, Dickens is known for his use of similes, uh, and there's just so many memorable similes throughout this whole book. And like we were mentioning earlier, I really love the contrast of the similes used to describe Scrooge at the start. You know, hard and sharp as flint, from which no fire was ever struck, and and, and then the similes um, used to describe him at the end. So. Um, you know, and that ties in what Miss Greenacre has just sort of said about there's all this juxtapositions as well because the similes are juxtaposed, which if you don't know what that means, it means they're sort of held next to each other to contrast so as we can think about the similarities and differences. And that basically sums it up. It's we, it's it's the similarities and differences between all of us and the idea that you may be this one person at one stage in your life but by just letting a little bit of life and love into your life you can become a totally transformed and different person which is the overall message of the novella through the power of christmas god bless us everyone 